0: Tonight's talk is part two on Conceit. Stephen and I were listening to the Bob Dylan tape again on the Conceit song and there are some more lines I wanted to share with you from that song. There's a whole lot of hearts breaking tonight from the disease of Conceit comes right out of nowhere when you're down for the count. From the outside world, the pressure will mount, will turn you into a piece of meat, the disease of conceit. (laughs) If you've got delusions of grandeur and an eagle eye give you the idea that you're too good to die, then they'll bury you from your head to your feet from the disease of... (laughs) It's a great song. (laughs) Just to remind you a bit about the traditional aspects of these armies of Mara, that conceit is given three categories I think is really important. It's, it's considered to be so dangerous for us in our spiritual journey. Remembering that Mara is the darkness that can come that will prevent us from seeing the truth of things clearly. It prevents us from being in harmony within ourselves and with the world. The Eighth Army of Mara is that way that we feel worthless. It's a kind of self-deprecation or self-condemnation, which I talked a lot about the last time. The Ninth Army of Mara being the desire for gain or reverence and fame. The Tenth Army being self-importance and belittling other people, putting others down. And the ninth and the tenth armies are those that I'd like to cover tonight. For anyone who wasn't here the last time I talked about conceit, in the Buddhist tradition it's not just self-importance that uh, the definition of conceit is given. It's really both sides of the coin, the deflation and inflation of self are considered conceit, self-deprecation, or self-importance. And that's especially important, I think, for Westerners to remember that it's not, we always have this idea that it's that inflation, and really the suffering is considered to be this duality of worthlessness or worth, knowing that the truth is much deeper than that duality that we play in. (coughs) The word conceit uh, implies a kind of self-reference. So when you think of what I is and conceit, it's the belief that the body is mine or that one's thoughts are mine or one's emotions are mine or one's pleasant or unpleasant or neutral feelings are mine. All this is this self-reference point, believing this I to be real It's important to remember that that's the basis for these three armies of Mara. That self-reference point is that sense of separation and alienation, which is why we're suffering, because that isn't the truth. Even though we believe the thoughts, or we believe that the body is mine, it really isn't. It's a lie. So the Ninth Army of Mara, the desire for a gain, reverence, and fame, um, it's an interesting one to try to talk about. I'd like to share with you a passage called The Dung Beetle. This is what the Buddha had to say about the Ninth Army of Mara. A fatal thing, monks, are gains, favors, and fame a bitter harsh impediment to unsurpassed freedom from bondage it is like a beetle feeding on dung full of dung gorged with dung standing before a great dung hill <laughs> <laughs> who might despise other beetles, saying, I am a dung-eater <laughs> full of dung, gorged with dung, and before me is this great dunghill." <laughs> you can imagine, <laughs> this is what he thinks of this army of mine. <laughs> It's quite a metaphor. Standing before this great dung hill, saying, "I am gorged with dung." <laughs> this is conceit. <laughs> and I think that what is uh, being said in this is that our motivation, our intention, is what is so important. And when our motivation is off when it's colored by greed or hatred or delusion it's so full of dung you know, I mean it's just, it's just so impure and when the mind is pure, when the intention is pure the whole world is pure so what, what is it that is motivating us to practice This is what's so important. This is the difference between this dung and the purity that's possible. Are we motivated to practice from the fear of failure or for approval? Or are we motivated to practice for gain or reverence or fame for any kind of winning? These these aspects are the ninth army of Mara at play, and this is our motivation to practice. is a wonderful place to watch the self-reference of I take place. If you have the sense of um, when you go, say you go for an interview, and just all the energy that goes into before the interview, the interview. And after the interview, you know, and there's, there's the thought, I'm doing great, or I'm, I'm special, I'm getting it now, or I'm doing better, you know, than, <laughs> than last year or this week. Or there's the, the side of I'm no good, and I'm failing. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm really going backwards. It's, I'm no good. There's all these judgments going on. And if we think of how much time we even spend rehearsing for the interview. I mean honestly, like how much (laughs) stuff goes through the mind, you know, around that meeting. And it's often because, especially at this point in the retreat, you know, there's so little input, there's so little stimulation that this is a big busy day. <laughs> you know, that's it, folks, <laughs> other than lunch, you know, it's, it's really exciting. <laughs> and it's really a lot to work with, And if you're very honest with yourself, that relationship between the fear of failure or the desire for approval. And that when we're motivated from the fear of failure, There can be that dread of interviews, or the disappointment afterwards, and the self-evaluation, and the comparing with others, or the self-pity, or self-hatred. Those are all the judgments that can come up when there's that fear of failure. This often comes from, even if, if we've survived the school systems that most of us have gone through, What we usually learn in school is not to be motivated from any kind of love of learning. You know, it's usually coming from this dread of getting a bad grade, you know, or making it through somehow, or getting some kind of reward for doing good. It has nothing to do with any kind of deep delight in the truth. It's almost like we most people survive education. So we're not conditioned to be motivated from the love of truth or from our own interest. I remember I was teaching learning disabilities in the northern part of the state of Maine. Many years ago, and I used to have to walk into a public school classroom and take the children out of the classroom and bring them, you know, anywhere I could to do some other kind of learning with them. And I remember there was this one kindergarten teacher that ruled her classroom with an iron <laughs> iron gloves. And they were these teeny little <laughs> kindergarten children. They were so sweet and open. Halfway through the school year I walked into this kindergarten class and this little teeny sweet little girl said to the teacher, I hate school. You know, she just was she just hated it. And the teacher said, That's tough luck, that's tough luck, kid. You've got twelve more years of it. <laughs> And my heart just went, oh <laughs> that poor kid. Her eyes just kinda of went, oh no. <laughs> And that's kinda of how it was, you know, it was a tough walk that we you know, had to go through it. Um <laughs> And it's almost like sometimes there can be this feeling here that it's kind of Nibbana or bust, you know, it's like, there can be that energy of, I gotta get to enlightenment quick, and then I'll be there, and then it'll be nothing more to do. And what is that? Where does that get us, that incredible desire? That desire to get somewhere other than where we are in the moment and to explore where we are in the moment no matter where we are because that's the truth and that we have that incredible love of the truth and that we want to explore that it's very different than that's tough luck you've got one more month of this We can learn to practice from this deep love of the truth rather than the desire for getting somewhere for gain or from the the wanting approval or the fear of failure. And when we're motivated from this deeper place, we know that we'll make mistakes and we're willing to take risks and go off rather than to be driven someone gave me a book recently called Japanese Death Poems and it's written by Zen monks and haiku poets just on the verge of death. This is from the Zen monk Tokusho who died in the year 1387. Look straight ahead. What's there? If you see it as it is, you will never err. Look straight ahead, what's there? If you see it as it is, you will never err. To see means to see what is actually there, not what we want to see, but what actually exists in the moment. It's all seeing. Sometimes the willingness to see is there, but somehow the seven factors of enlightenment aren't in balance. Sometimes they're way out of balance, or none of them are present, you know, or sometimes they're a little out of balance. And so maybe the energy is really low, and the willingness to look is there. But we're not able, you know, we just don't have the energy to be that fully present. Or say the concentration is off. Whatever it is, maybe we can't find the detail in the walking or in the breath or in the sound. And this is where we tend to judge ourselves the most. There's this tremendous fear in that moment of not being able to do it right, of somehow we're not getting it right. And it's important to learn our rhythm, our own personal rhythm within an hour or within a day. That yes, the ten armies of Mara are in and out of our mind, they're at play. The seven factors of enlightenment are in and out of balance. And there's this dark and light and dark and light. It's possible to remain unfocused for a while. say the factors of enlightenment are just a little off, or just the energy is low and the others are there. We can learn to rest the mind and not go off on a half-hour holiday or fantasy, but just stay there lightly. It doesn't have to be that microscopic or that focused. And that's fine we're being present just as fully as we can but somehow we get this judgment that that's not good enough and it is fine (laughs) but it's that judgment we have to watch out for sometimes it's very dark, it's like we're very closed and we're we're not willing, we're not only not able but we're also not willing to look And we have to learn even to be with that, that we can, yes, keep going even when the motivation is gone. But we can note that. We can just note, okay, (laughs) close down, off, just kind of hibernate through the next walking, hibernate through the next sitting. It's possible. And it's not personal. These factors of enlightenment are just going in and out of balance and we can't force it to change we can learn how to be with it until it changes and it will change as you all know so very well at this point that you do have a rhythm if you can allow it that's one of the beauties of the three-month course is that one learns by going through each day And over and over again, one sees that one does have a rhythm and that the rhythm changes. One learns how to honor and respect that rhythm within oneself rather than comparing ourselves with others. If one is motivated from the desire for approval or gain for wanting the great enlightenment, or from the fear of failure, then one forgets one's original purpose, one forgets that deep motivation to be with things how they are and we end up suffering because self-understanding is not about outer achievement or outer approval. We learn that we don't have to perform or please others compare ourselves to others. This last time that I was sitting here at IMS with Sayadaw Upandita, it seems like for several years I was ripening in this one kind of space in the meditation. And it felt like I had gotten to know that landscape quite well. And Sayadaw tends to have a lot of patience with letting someone ripen somewhere for years, if you have to, without changing any instruction. And one day during the course, he gave me a very, very new instruction and it was incredible to watch what happened in my mind. It was like I got back to the cushion and I wanted to get, I wanted to know right away you know, what would happen and I wanted to be able to do it right and it took me several days before I could just let that all go and go back to just sinking into each moment and being there fully it absolutely didn't matter what the instruction was. Basically, it was the same practice. But that, that desire to know and to do it right can be very strong in us. And it, can, it was so much suffering. I had been feeling happier than I, and more content than I ever have in my life. And it was such a, a contrast that those moments when I'd start to... Grab on again and want to know rather than just to explore. It's such a wonderful feeling when we're just exploring. <coughs> Learning implies letting go of control. It's like a snake shedding its skin. The snake sheds its skin, it dies. There's a death. And then there's this rebirth, there's a renewal. One has to go through that not knowing and surrender. It's an enormous letting go of control. The eye screams sometimes when when we are we're getting close to that kind of surrender. And actually that that death and birth and death and birth are actually happening moment by moment each moment is new and we don't know what's going to happen so it requires this, this newness that can happen and mystery moment by moment. This is life it's such a mystery and it's so awesome and we can do that by, by just letting go of wanting to be right, wanting to get it, and, and allowing ourselves to be with that not knowing. There's a poem by Rilke that... I like a lot. It's called I live my life. I live my life in growing orbits which move out over the things of the world. Perhaps I can never achieve the last, but that will be my attempt. I am circling around God, around the ancient tower. And I have been circling for a thousand years. And I still don't know if I am a falcon or a storm or a great song. That's such a quality of not knowing and surrender. I've been circling for a thousand years and I still don't know if I'm a falcon or a storm or a great song. Finding one's own center. Finding this inner jewel. That we can explore from is really learning responsibility for our own practice. It's learning responsibility for one's own mind. Trusting one's own rhythm is a kind of maturity rather than blaming, you know, the schedule or teachers or authority figures or our parents or role models or ourselves. Maturity is taking responsibility for one's own birth, for one's own life. Moment by moment, step by step, breath by breath. It's this ability not to reach out, not to reach in, but just to rest at our center and then there's this ability to be fully present and awake that's a moment of awakening being truly open when our practice unfolds from this inner center there's the growth of inner security if one practice doesn't unfold from this inner center one is still dependent on outer approval or this inner fear of failure And it's a very fragile, very insecure world. And the I really is getting stronger within that. It's not weakening. And that's why I just want to emphasize for all of you (laughs) and all of us that if our practice comes from the inside, there's this chance of inner security. But if we're motivated from this outer Outer desire for gain or approval, or this inner fear of failure, it just doesn't mature. We're still as dependent and fragile as ever. And in this comes from trusting your own inner rhythms in the practice. There are many levels to this ninth army of Mara, the desire for gain or reverence or fame. If one has practiced for a while, and if one's understanding has deepened a bit, sometimes people will begin to feel like sharing the Dharma with other people. And this sometimes comes from one's own experience in meditation or from studying the texts and the knowledge one gets from that. And the mind can become very attached. One can teach too soon without deepening or ripening the understanding. One can teach without guidance. One can feel like one has no more to learn. And these are all very dangerous one can overestimate oneself and one's understanding and it prevents us from seeing clearly prevents us from growing and a person might even stop practicing or pride develops and often what is meant by the desire for gain, reverence, and fame from this perspective is that the person is being motivated by the desire for gain received from students. Or the person is motivated wanting the respect or reverence from students. Or the person is motivated for the desire for fame because of one's practice or the ability to teach or to give popular talks. And this is dangerous to everyone in the sangha. It's like a poison to the sangha. Because the intention isn't pure. It's not coming from that deeper place. This is a poem by Antonio Machado. I never wanted fame, nor wanted to leave my poems behind in the memory of men. I love the subtle worlds, delicate, almost without weight, like soap bubbles. I enjoy seeing them take the color of sunlight and scarlet. They float in the blue sky and then suddenly quiver and break I never wanted fame I love the subtle worlds this is being motivated by the love of exploring the life process itself of life and death just to watch a bubble take the color of sunlight and float in the blue sky and quiver and break this is that deep delight in the truth i was talking about our motivation is everything it's everything (laughs) it's the whole thing if our hearts are pure our whole world is pure and when our heart is poisoned, our whole world is poisoned desire just doesn't work So to end our suffering, to end our own slavery to the I, it's our ability to examine our motivation that feels the most important of everything the tenth army of Mara self exaltation disparaging others or self-importance putting others down usually this army of Mara is interpreted as meaning the pride that arises when we have some interesting experience in practice or any kind of deeper understanding that develops in practice and this can lead to disparaging other teachers or putting our own ideas up and putting other people's practice or beliefs down. This can have a wider interpretation in regard to putting up our own ideas and putting others down. More and more I see that the battles in this world, whether all of these horrible wars on this planet and all the suffering that comes from them, or just if you put two people in the same room, you know, just two people, and the difficulties or the arguments that can come just if from two people, never mind a group of people. And it always seems to, not always, but often seems to narrow down to this difference of belief. That's what so many people are fighting about. And it's extraordinary that you know, there's these thoughts that come through the mind and that people will kill each other for that. And in some ways, it's similar to what I talked about last time, which is it comes down to the ability to accept the differences between people. But not only to accept these differences, but to be able to respect, really respect another person's beliefs, even if they're different from ours. And it sounds easy to say, But it's actually quite difficult for us human beings to do this. And it's awesome. This need to be right, or the feeling of power that comes from that. When we feel like we're better than someone, when we feel like we need to be right, we can't listen. We can't open. And we can't learn from the person. And this loss of respect is the suffering. Is this separation and alienation that's so painful for us. I think that if one learns the art of listening, that one of the major parts of actually communicating with people is learned. this ability to listen. Often we're so involved in our own thoughts and needing to prove that we're right that we just can't listen. In regard to putting people in categories because of belief systems, I've been learning this with my nephew over the last few years. quite painfully. I raised my nephew for his first six years so I was—I had been very close to him in his early years and over the years. When I used to talk about equanimity in the past, I would compare the strength of a marine soldier with the strength of an open flower. And I would say that there were these two different kinds of strength and that I learned that as a child that the most important strength was to be more like a marine soldier which is very armored that you just don't feel anything and you get more and more armored that you are the really strong and invulnerable And then over the years of my meditation practice, I learned about a different kind of strength, which is a kind of strength that is very vulnerable, very open, but that the attention or awareness is so strong that one has this very deep equanimity and ability to be okay with whatever appears. they are very different types of strength. And then my nephew joined the Marines two years ago, <laughs> and it's still this incredible teaching for me, and I felt like I had been slapped across the face when he joined the marines and I had such a category in my mind that these Marines were it's almost like I unconsciously thought of them as subhuman, and i would you know I would never even notice anything in the newspaper about them and It's like I had this whole category of people as something that I wouldn't pay attention to. It was like I was better than them, and suddenly my whole world changed. And whenever I see—he's been in Korea and the Philippines—and you know, whenever I see there's a headline that says, you know, thousands of Marines sent to somewhere, I kind of go, oh no. It's a whole different feeling. My heart opened to this whole huge numbers of humanity Um, and it really taught me how easy I could do this make people subhuman just from a category it's so easy for us to do there's so much suffering in in this world I was um, contemplating sharing something with you, and I just decided, well, okay. Um, We did announce that the Dalai Lama won the Nobel Prize, and sometimes it's nice to share good news. Uh, The Berlin Wall was taken down, is in the process of being taken down. And it's so, I mean, I just felt like I wanted to share this with you because It's just so awesome, you know, that that for so many years there's just been this thing (laughs) that's caused so many people so much suffering, this separation and division. And it's causing, you know, that there's so much happiness happening right now. And that's why I wanted to share it with you. It's just people are so happy. And little, little children that never knew grandparents are just walking through the border. (laughs) You know, and it's, I just, it's just so much happiness. (laughs) And just to think of the suffering that comes in this world from these divisions and these borders. And they're so false. That's why I think that this is what is underneath the suffering, is that it's so false. It's not true. And you can feel, you know, the joy and the happiness that comes when the actual division breaks down again, because that is what's true. And that wall came up because of that army of Mara, of conceit. Another aspect of the 10th army of Mara that seems so critical to understand. The 10th army of Mara is considered to be the most lethal and the reason for this is because if one feels finished, one gets complacent and one stops growing and this is why it's considered to be the most dangerous because if one stops growing, one stops and one dies that's, that's the real death. If one feels finished it's impossible to receive feedback from other people. And it's impossible to improve ourselves. And it prevents the ability to receive guidance and to learn. There's a book called The Daughters of Copper Woman by a woman named Anne Cameron in which the practice of clowning through the eyes of Granny an old Nutka woman is described. And the clown of her tribe is considered to be a very, very sacred person. This clown of the tribe would be allowed to make fun of anybody in the tribe who got too conceited in any way, where the self-reference point became just a little bit too much for the people in the tribe and when the clown was never motivated out of meanness or out of harming or of of wanting to belittle the other person there was this deep motivation for it to become a teaching, a lesson and it was really to be able to show this person how the other people of the tribe saw them so that they could grow the clown had to be very talented and also very wise for this kind of pure motivation to occur. This is a quotation from Granny. If you thought every word you spoke was gospel, the clown would just stroll along behind you babbling away like a simple mind or a baby. Every up and down of your voice, the clown's voice would go up and down until you finally heard what an ass you were being. Or maybe you had a bad temper and yelled a lot when you got mad or hadn't learned any self-control or something like that. Well, the clown would just have fits. Every time you turned around, there'd be the clown bashing away with a stick on the sand or kicking like a fool at a big rock, or yelling insults back at the gulls, and just generally looking really stupid. We needed our clowns, and we used them to help us all learn the best ways to get along with each other. Being an individual is really good, but sometimes we're so busy being individuals we forget we have to live with, a, with other people who all got the right to be individuals too and the clowns could show us if we were getting a bit pushy or starting to take ourselves too serious this type of clown is one of the greatest gifts to humanity because humor allows us to open. You know, you can just feel that feeling when there's humor. The heart opens, and then we usually can receive the feedback. And it's such an art to be able to point out to someone what's difficult in them that's preventing the community from being in harmony. And this is such a teaching for us all. It's like, I see this over and over again where there'll be someone who someone is having difficulty with and instead of being able to confront it in some way and being honest, which is one of the precepts there's this inability to talk about it and it grows and grows and grows until that person can become quite isolated and it's really not, it's not bringing the awareness into that part of our lives. And humor, that kind of clowning, can be so helpful. I had a very good friend in college who kind of um, embodied this to me. And he and some of my family moved up to Northern Maine. And sometimes in the first years of living up there, it was quite difficult. And sometimes we'd all be kind of, we'd be, there was one time where there was 13 of us living in one house. <laughs> and one day, uh, there, was this, there was always a tension that would build around when somebody was being difficult and no one would confront it. One, for an example, one time there was someone who felt like they were doing all the work mm-hmm. and that everybody else was being lazy. And so this guy would kind of, all of a sudden, he'd just start sighing, and he'd go, I do all the work around here. You know, and he'd, he'd repeat it every couple of five minutes. He'd go, I do all the work around here. You know, and the tension would just sort of build and build and build. And then finally, everyone would just burst out laughing. And there'd be a healing. Because this person couldn't hold on to it anymore. And it became funny. And then we could talk about it. It's like one he exaggerates you know, what he would used to do to me when I would start feeling like I uh, my self-image was lower than most everyone, and I would start feeling like I wasn't doing something right, and I would be in the middle of doing something that I didn't feel I was doing right, and he'd yell at the top of his lungs, stupid jerk. <laughs> and I would just I would just die. I mean, I would just kind of. <laughs> go over and die, and but it would be so funny. <laughs> you know? I would I would just have to open to it, and I would see that that was just that form of conceit, and I would let it go. And in some ways, that taught me more than I've learned in many years of practice. That just that ability to, in that moment, yell something out so that everybody could hear it, and I'd be humiliated. But then I knew that he loved me, and I knew that he was just pointing out that weakness, and it was wonderful. I play with it all, all the time, as people who <laughs> know me know. It's a wonderful phrase. <clears throat> Sometimes that ability to exaggerate in your practice, you know, if something's really hard, to just scream, ouch. Not out loud. (laughs) You don't have to yell out loud. (laughs) But just silently to yourself, some way of acknowledging the reality of the situation. And then the tension, it's like a balloon bursts and there's that openness again. This kind of humor and laughter allows us to forgive ourselves and each other. It helps us to learn to live with each other. Sometimes I think that humor is left off of all the lists in Buddhism because it's just assumed (laughs) that it's there. (laughs) It's such an important quality to bring into our practice and our life. In regard to this last, most lethal army of Mara, the last thing I wanted to talk about is this ability to keep going, to keep the commitment going, no matter what's happening. The person who has most inspired me with this is the teacher Deepama, who died recently, who lived in Calcutta. One year, I think it was 1984, she came to teach this three-month course and she was living at the house across the street over there and I would be doing my interviews in the morning and then I'd walk up to my room after lunch and I'd be really tired and I'd either decide that I needed to take a nap and go for a walk or go for a walk And then as I was either going about to do one or the other, I would look out my window and I could see Deepama after a morning of interviews, who was very old and very sick, every single day of the three-month course, whether rain or shine or sleep or snow, (laughs) she'd be out there doing walking (laughs) meditation. And, you know, it was—it became sort of a game for me. Like, I'd kind of run up and look and see if she was out there. And she would be, you know, every single day. It was... This lady was not, you know, just some, you know... I don't know. She was so extraordinary. Her mind was so developed. And to see her out there still practicing, it was mind-boggling to me. Mind-boggling. And then... She would always be open to people going over to visit her over there. And when I would walk in, the TV would be going. Her daughter would be either cooking or watching TV. And it would not just be going, it would be blasting. And then the grandson would be running around screaming. And it was just this very, very loud, busy family scene. And she'd be sitting there in meditation, right in the living room. (laughs) <laughs> and I would go and sit down and she'd, I'd wait for a little while and she'd open her eyes and she'd come from the deepest place like softer than moonlight so peaceful and so loving it was like this none of this stuff was going on around her but she wasn't separate from it she was right in it she was right there all the time Sitting and walking, sitting and walking. No matter what was happening, and she'd always chastise us teachers for not sitting enough and not practicing enough. <laughs> it was like she was so, um, she was going for it. You know, this little teeny lady was just going for it. She really wanted to totally end her suffering, and she wasn't fooling around. It was. I, like I said, she just was so inspiring to me on that level. Her commitment. to It was the commitment to be mindful. That's all it is. It's that remembering that it's just a matter of coming back one more time in that moment. It's that drop by drop by drop that we open to this crystal jewel inside. It's that center of awakening. There was a group that I remember someone asked her, what what is it like in your consciousness? What's in your mind? And she smiled and then she closed her eyes for a moment and she answered in my mind there are three things concentration loving kindness and peace the person said that's all? (laughs) (laughs) and she said yes that's all (laughs) Some of us have a few other things in our mind. (laughs) There's a possibility for that in all of us, that our minds are that pure, just concentration, loving kindness, and peace. like to end with a quote from the Buddha. The Buddha compared a person who boasts of success in conquering desire to a person from whose flesh the doctor has removed a poison arrow and the wound which the doctor dressed. There seems to be no poison left behind. But such a person is not really out of danger. Therefore, the doctor tells the person to diet or bathe or dress the wound and avoid exposing it to wind or sun and let the dirt get into it. If one neglects to do what the doctor says, the wound will become infected again. And the same with the person whose mind is set for the truth. There is always danger. Let a person not persuade themselves that the poison of self and its desire is ever wholly dissipated. Be ceaselessly mindful. Conceit is that poison of self and its desire, and it's so dangerous. Let's sit for a few minutes.